In the latest flurry of activity around climate change and the coming COP26, the UK government has announced a 10-point plan. This raises some quite interesting questions when you look at uh, how well it's apparently received. Why exactly do governments like nice round numbers like 10? Could it ever really be the case that a credible approach to climate change all added up to the magic number 10? That's not just the UK government. Uh, The EU pursued the ludicrous idea that everything added up to 20. It had a 2020 plan for 2020. 20% renewables, 20% energy efficiency, all by the nice round number of 2020. It's ludicrous. It's never going to add up to 20. And it's never going to be coherent to say that 10 is the right answer for the number of actions on climate change. Why not nine? Why not 17? And the answer to this is that the politics of climate change are very different from what's needed to actually get to net zero on a consumption basis and actually make a difference about climate change. So it's popular because everyone's a winner. So you you may upset people on the green side if you promote nuclear, but uh, if you promote renewables at the same time, then everyone can come away with a prize. And indeed, in the new list, there are some new entries. Coming in in the top of the pops chart at number nine is nature. That's the first time that government has recognised that It's not just about emissions, but it's about the way in which the natural world sequestrates carbon. And it is indeed the way in which the balance of the carbon concentration in the atmosphere has worked for the last 100,000 million, millions of years going back. So the list is not all bad. And most of the things that are in the list are things that we might reasonably want to do. But Does it really get us towards serious net zero? Does it really address climate change? I don't think even the government would say that this is the end of the ambition. This is just the beginning and that's a vision and that's fair enough. But what really matters is not whether each of these measures make a contribution. It's whether, in fact, we reduce uh, the continuous increase of carbon concentration in the atmosphere. That's all that matters for climate change. What is the balance between emissions and natural sequestration? How many parts per million are there up there? And the truth is, for the last 30 years, we've just kept pumping more and more into the atmosphere, two parts per million every single year since 1990, financial crisis included and COVID included, of course, In the lockdowns, emissions came down, but that's only part of the balance between sequestration and emissions. And so far, it's made little difference. And indeed, by May of this year, China was already back at the level of emissions it was in uh, the same month, May 2019. Remember, China really matters here. It's over half the total world coal burn, for example, and it's building lots of new coal-powered stations. So the real test for the 10-point plan is to ask, well, is it going to reduce those number of emissions going up into the atmosphere? And the answer to that, if the British government, indeed the EU, wants to pursue unilateral climate change policies for what is a global problem, 
is that we have to focus on carbon consumption, not just territorial carbon production. And there are two bits to this. The consumption side means that we have to take account of the fact it doesn't matter whether the emissions are produced in the UK or they're produced in Nigeria. What matters is just that there are emissions. That means that we have to have in mind that if we just carry on closing down our energy intensive industries, that won't solve climate change if we simply import the stuff instead. So if you really want to influence global warming and you want to influence the carbon concentration in the atmosphere, you have to focus on your carbon footprint. And if you want to do it unilaterally, it must include imports as well as domestic product. And that feeds through into the observation which follows, which is that we have to have a way of making sure that the polluter pays. And the polluter when you buy stuff from China produced in a coal-intensive way here in the UK, if we consume it, we are the polluter. And that means that we need to have a carbon pollution price. And in that great list of 10 items, you won't see a carbon tax highlighted as a big ticket item. Why? Because the politics of this are all about telling everyone that it isn't going to cost them anything, that they're all going to be winners at the end of this process. It's going to be a great industrial green revolution. It's going to create 250,000 jobs. We're all going to be better off. Well, if only. Fundamental truth is very, very different. It is that because we're not paying for the pollution we're causing, and it's not just about carbon, by the way, we are axiomatically, it follows, living beyond our environmental means. We're not paying back for the damage that we're doing. And if we did do so, if we incorporated the cost of carbon into our prices and therefore into our consumption, there is no way that we're going to be better off in the short run by pursuing a unilateral carbon even territorial production target, let alone focusing on the things that matter, which is carbon consumption. And this is important because there are two philosophies out here. Don't scare the horses, which is the strategy that many green groups have pursued. Tell everyone they're all going to be better off and they're going to have to pay the cost of carbon because uh, we're going to switch to a non-carbon economy. And, you know, that radical switch, cars in further electricity production, in agriculture uh, and the rest of transport, all of that's going to be cheap. Well, it might be. It's perfectly possible. There's lots of technical change and it kind of works out, but I wouldn't bet on it. And if you look at the scale of the investment that lies behind delivering on this 10-point plan, uh, it's not 4 billion, it's not 12 billion, it's hundreds of billions. So, well, who's going to pay for that? Well, the answer that um, uh, many green groups give is that, well, don't worry, we'll just borrow it. Uh, and if we can't borrow it, you know what, we'll just print it. Really? So who is going to be the lender? Who is going to do the savings 
that uh, are going to be provided to make that investment take place. Well, politicians certainly don't want it to be you and me. They don't want us consumers to have to curtail our consumption in order to make room in our budgets for the savings which back up the investment. And, you know, alongside the 10-point plan, and indeed it's actually number 10 in the list, comes green finance and the idea that we can turn to financial markets to pay for all of this lot rather than to you and me. Well, that's a delusion and uh, it's going to be played out in large scale going forward. We are a consumption-based society. It's demand, consumption, consumers, retail that drives our economy, not investment savings and uh, driving uh, the productive side of the economy. So if you really want to do this, you've got to get the savings ratio up, reduce consumption, make room for savings, and you've got to pay the price of the pollution in uh, all the prices you get in the supermarket uh, for fast fashion, for all the things that British consumers are addicted to. And there's a deeper philosophical point here too. You know, if we just go around borrowing, who's going to inherit the debt? You know, we're already cheating on the next generation. We're piling up the debts for them from the uh, other expenditures because we can't live within our national budgetary means. And on top of that, we're giving them the pollution, which is going to cause them, the next generation, the climate change. Oh, and all the damage to the rivers, the loss of biodiversity, etc. It's a terrible intergenerational bargain we're already striking. And simply going out there and borrowing and hope someone else will pay back in the future is not living up to our current generation's environmental obligations. So next time you hear another 10-point plan, ask yourself some simple questions. How is it going to make you and me change our behaviour such that our carbon consumption goes down and we switch to low carbon goods and pay the costs of doing that and provide the savings to ensure that we make that step. That's the question that one needs to ask. And I think that uh, it's going to take a long haul to address global climate change unless we face up to that reality. And in my net zero book, that's just a way you could do it. Write down your carbon diary. Write down from the moment you get up to the moment you go to bed, all the stuff that you consume and write down what you think. Have a guess at what the carbon content of that is. And now realise what net zero carbon consumption means. It means that in 250, if you're still around to write that diary, it will not have hardly any of that carbon in it. And ask yourself a question. Are you really going to have a frame from now on, the next 10, 20, 30 years, in which you get better off, you face no cost whatsoever, and you have to make that substitution? So I think uh, what we need in the 10-point plan is a bit of carbon honesty. Telling people this is not a free lunch, telling people this is really worth doing, it matters, it's our obligation and duty to do this, And telling people there's some blood, sweat and tears in this too, because we can't go on living beyond our climate change means 
our biodiversity means and beyond the planet's means. Then we will have a proper plan which starts with savings, starts with carbon pricing and will be then on our way to addressing what is the obligation of this current generation. Thank you.